We need the truth of God's word to direct our steps in a world full of lies. And it is a world full of lies. There was a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, if I can get that right, Solzhenitsyn. He was a Russian born during the Russian Revolution as a strong socialist. He followed this Communist Socialist Party. Uh, however, in 1945, he was condemned to a Soviet gulag in Siberia for eight years because he wrote something negative about Stalin. It was like a minor thing, too. Later, he'd become known as a Nobel laureate, a communist dissident, a Orthodox Christian. He was a man who believed God's word, and he believed the ultimate issues with the Soviet Union weren't just political or economic, they were spiritual. It wasn't just the Soviet world he was concerned about, it was all the world that was under the power of the prince of the air, Satan. And while in prison, he wrote this manifesto, a lot of things, but he encouraged himself specifically to say that we must not live by lies. He said, we must not accept without protest all the falsehood and propaganda that the state compels its citizens to affirm. He said, no ordinary man may be able to overturn the kingdom of lies, but he can at least say that he is not going to be its loyal subject. And we may cry, Yes, let us not live by the lies of the liberals who are trying to destroy the world that we know. And we can get really angry about those lies. We can look at the ridiculousness of the world, or we can stop and think, what lies might I believe as well? It's not just their lies, it's my lies. I, I read recently about a Christian family who came here from Iran and they lived in the United States for about three years, and they're like, we have to leave this place. The wife had had a conversation with her husband where she said, there's a satanic lullaby in this country. All the Christians are sleepy, and I feel like I'm sleepy living here. See, our problem is not just deceit in one direction. And I think the psalm is bringing this out. It's often when we see lies of others, we can have a reverse lie of saying, how dare they take what is mine? How dare they make my life uncomfortable? I'm angry at their success. We have lies from every direction. And God's word speaks to the wisdom of this age to wake us up to our need for God's ways. Now, a little context before we jump in. Uh, I've called this a old age wisdom because this is written near the end of David's life. You'll notice right after the title comes of David. This is a psalm written by David. And if you go to verse 25, you will see him say, I have been young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. David's not that young man who fought Goliath. He is now a man who has seen the outcome of faith and the outcome of failure, both in his own life and in the lives of others. And this is a lesson that David is giving us, much like the lesson he gave to his son Solomon. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen if you'd like to. But in 1 Kings chapter 2, 
the transition is happening from David to Solomon, and he says, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1 and 4, as David's time drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong, show yourself a man, and keep charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you'll turn. In the same way, this is a wisdom psalm where David is trying to tell the people of Israel in his old age, here's the path that is going to get you better blessing. Here is the path that is going to keep you away from the lies. This psalm is placed purposely in a section of psalms dealing with reflections on evil in the world. Why does it seem so often that evil succeeds? And it picks up right after the end of Psalm 36, verse 12. It says, The evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. And this picks up saying, but what happens when I don't see that right away? (laughs) They're supposed to fall down, but that's not happening now. And he's saying, oh, but it will. We have the confounding challenge that sometimes we believe the lie that living a God-focused life isn't worth it because the people who are living differently, the people who are rejecting God, seem to have everything. And based on his years of perspective and with the Holy Spirit behind his words, David gives us wisdom. He gives us five lessons to shift your focus when the world is not as it should be. If you're taking notes, we're going to try and hit on these five lessons to shift, S-H-I-F-T. We're only going to get through the first two. Um, We're going to get through the first two. Shift your focus when things are not as they should be. And the important one starts us off in verse 1 through 11, is that we need to school our desires. School your desires. Teach your desires something. Let them know that I am in charge and I need to control you. It's a big section, so let me read it. Verses 1 through 11. Psalm 37, verse 1. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious because of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace." Verses 1 through 11, school your desires. 
Perhaps the hardest part of this whole psalm is found in its very first word, fret not. It, the word fret not is a command, and in English it means don't be anxious or worried, but the Hebrew is a bit stronger. It means to be worried as a result of anger. It gives the image of fire in your throat. You know, you know when you get really upset and you want to say something because you're so angry and you're worried and you're concerned and it feels like it's burning inside of you? That, that's the image. It's the same word used in Genesis 1. Remember in Genesis 1, Cain and Abel, two brothers, and we saw in Genesis 4 that they um, are coming to bring an offering and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. He's, a, he, he's angry. He's angry and he's concerned about something. And David gives the reason. Be not fret yourselves because of evildoers. Don't be envious because of wrongdoers. For all their accomplishments, their successes. David knows that sometimes a righteous person, a God-honoring person, looks at the world around them and you go, why do the ungodly seem to have everything? They're not living by God's morals, but they seem to be doing so well. They, they look, in verse 35, he says, like a bright green laurel tree. And a good reader of the Psalms would be like, wait a second. Psalm 1 says that the righteous are supposed to be like a tree. Psalm 1, if you want to flip all the way back there real quickly, Psalm 1, verse 1, says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That man was a good man. But verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The unrighteous, though, are the ones whose kids have the nice cars that their parents can afford. They get the promotions at work. They have the large families and are blessed with many babies. They have all the visits from family members and from dignitaries and from neighbors who want to spend time with them. They have lots of fans and followers. The unrighteous seem to do well. And so he gives two reasons not to get upset about this. He says that they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. You know, you're driving through the hills. So much here is irrigated. We always talk about how we live in a desert and the sprinklers keep everything green, right? But you see, you go up into the hills, you go on 133 and you drive along there in the springtime and it's beautiful and green. What is it all like now? Dry, lifeless, probably a fire danger that needs to be cut down quickly. Um, and, and that's the point is that they look great and green, but they have no stream of life. They do not have God's sustaining grace. And so while they look green for a moment, that will fade. So instead of focusing on them and their successes, he instead makes a connection between trusting God and doing good deeds. 
Verse three, trust in the Lord, do good. Trusting in Yahweh will lead to doing good deeds. As James says in James chapter two, verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's not real faith. If you trust God, you will focus on doing good. And so he's, he addresses to the frustrated, to the huffing and puffing, to the ex- exasperated members of Israel. He says, do not fret. In verse eight, he says, refrain from anger, forsake not your wrath. It's only gonna take you down that same path. Instead, do good. As Paul brings out in Romans chapter 12, verse 20 and 21, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 20 through 21. In verse three, he said, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. That word befriend might be translated shepherd. And so it takes the image of your faithful acts, the good deeds God has called you to do, treat them like a shepherd does his sheep, feeding them, watching them, protecting them, always staying with them. This focus, it says, get your eyes off the wicked and how they're prospering. Focus on your good deeds and focus, most importantly, on God and these new desires that you need. Verse four says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You've probably heard that verse a million times. It often gets thrown around and it means to take your greatest pleasure in God, to know him more, to live for his smile and approval. You get what's happening here. He's saying, hey, Israel, righteous people, you're getting upset that you don't have whatever the wicked have. I'm telling you, you're looking on the wrong thing. Instead, be like a nursing child who's milk drunk and gazing up at mom in delight. Who cares what's happening anywhere else in the world, right? David says, relish your relationship with God the way rich people enjoy fine food, drink, luxurious surroundings, stylish adornment. See, see, there's an important theological truth here. God, Yahweh, Jesus Christ is the most glorious being in existence. To point to something else or someone else would be a selfish thing for him to do. It would be the most unloving thing for him to do because our joy can only be found in delighting in him. John Piper says it simply, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. I would greatly encourage you, pick up in our library. You can go there and use the new system or just check some, go in there or fill out a card. Look at the many books by John Piper about delighting in God. He, he does this so well. And when our hearts delight in God, God will give us our desires because our desires 
will be rightly directed towards the greatest thing in the universe, himself. Again, that our, our desires change when we delight in him. And delighting in God comes through reading scripture. This is why we encourage people to read your Bibles. In Jeremiah 15, 16, Jeremiah the prophet says, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me joy and delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, Yahweh, God of hosts. Or Psalm 1 says, The righteous man's delight is the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. See, in the midst of the success of the ungodly, we are to seek God's way. Because, verse 10 makes clear that in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. They're going to disappear. Those who delight in the Lord will last. Because instead, verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Rich read it this morning as we were talking about the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, and Jesus is quoting from this psalm for a reason when he said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You probably thought Jesus was just making up a bunch of things all at once, right? Often we think that, but you know, he's actually quoting from the Old Testament as he goes throughout that. And meekness is not small mousiness, someone who's weak. Meekness is strength from trusting in a sovereign God. See, if you, it's, it's when you have self-control when there's a fire burning inside you. When, when you're tempted to fret and be angry at the world, and yet you choose self-control. The word meekness was used for wild animals that were tamed, especially of horses that had been broken and trained. Horses still have great strength, or they wouldn't be much use, would they? But it's under the control of its master. A tamed lion is still very powerful, but its power is controlled by its trainer. Meekness is power under control. And David knows the first step towards meekness is turning over the results to the master, saying, how does he want me to direct my strength? Where does he want me to go? When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus on the Garden of Gethsemane, what did Peter do? He drew a sword, right, to fight for Jesus. And Jesus said, Matthew 26, 53, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But he's following his father's will. See, the meek are those who have the greatest power on their side. The glory of God, the creator of the universe, the God of angel armies, and yet they're not worried. It's a picture. You might see difference, and, and I'm sorry for any of you who have little dogs, but little dogs yap a lot, don't they? Especially when they're worried. They just start yapping and yapping and yapping, and you're like, you could be crushed by any bad guy. If, if anyone broke in, they would not be afraid of you. And yet you have also very big dogs. And big dogs, I don't know if always, but this is the ones that I know they would let off one loud woof. And that's just enough. And then they just sit there and they look at you. 
Like, I, I can take you. I'm big enough. They don't want to keep yelping. And I think that same way where meekness is, I don't need to fret because I have the power and assurance of God behind me. See, we need to teach our desires what is best. Oprah, everyone knows who Oprah is, right? And you may know she still appears on talk shows and and has quite a conglomerate. And she recently appeared on um, a late night show with Stephen Colbert. And they know Stephen Colbert claims to be a Roman Catholic. She claims to be a and they're talking back and forth. And what are your favorite Bible verses? And she says, unsurprisingly, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Oh, great. Yay, someone's talking about the Bible on, on late night television. Except her explanation of that passage. She said, well, the Lord has a wide range. It means compassion, love, forgiveness, kindness. So you delight yourself in those virtues. The character of the Lord is revealed. If you focus on being a force for good, then good will come. What this text is really saying is the same thing in a high-level physics, the same thing as Eastern religions, the same thing as the teaching of Jesus. And I know most of you would go, oh no, but often that's what we want that verse to mean, don't we? We want that verse to mean, well, if I just do good, then good will come back to me and I will get what we want, what I want. But that misses the whole point of the context, doesn't it? See, the best way to bring the desires of our heart into conformity with God is to put all our energy and all our effort into enjoying God himself, trusting God himself. Let me suggest some ways to go about this education of our hearts and our desires. Too often, we are satisfied with lesser things. We are. And we need to shift our predominant desire from having a good marriage, successful career, happy and healthy children, our own good health, or even a united government, whatever you name. Think of those things. What are the things that we're like, just give me this God and I will be content. But the most helpful and necessary focus you and I must have is to love and obey God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We must long for something even more than just doing the right thing. Because that can be, well, I'm just going to do the right thing and then good stuff will happen. No, we need to say, as Jesus did in the very garden, not my will, but yours be done. I am your slave, God, to do with me as you will. And I know you're a good master who will do good. We must find our joy and happiness in loving and obeying God, even while we desire these other things. Like, don't get me wrong. Some of those things are really good, even necessary, but they're secondary to saying, I need to want what God wants. I need to love him. And that will flow into our good deeds. No, we can educate our hearts in many ways. 
often it has to do with what we're looking for all the time. You think about it this way. You you can be perfectly content, and then you see someone else have something you want, whether it's clothing or a new toy, new car, or, you know, today it's the technology of ads on the internet flash certain things. They, they know what you've bought online, and they flash things that you want. They're like, well, you just want this thing as well, right? They, they know that I'm um, into just you know, having smart lights that turn on automatically, and so they're like, here's this advanced, like, multi-hundred dollar device that you can purchase, and I don't care about it until I look at it. It flashes a couple times, and then I look at it, and I'm like, oh, maybe I really do want that. Oh, wait, click on it. Hey, um, it's only, could I buy, ooh, those are the features. Oh, maybe, I, oh, why don't I have this thing? And discontentment grows because it's what we look at over and over again. And this is where your theology matters because well, even Amazon is getting very good at knowing how to cha- train your desires and take something you want and put it in your face. We have to say, what is most desirable? To the teenagers, this is a question. As you're looking at life, what do you want to accomplish? What do you want to succeed in? What will make you happy? Single people, as you're looking for who to marry, who do you spend time with? Who are you impressed by? Those around you, who are your close friends? You're like, wow, this is the kind of person I could marry. Or do you look for the right kind of people? See, what we keep looking at over and over again is what our heart starts to love. And we're going to get back here. But we have to keep looking at God. Again, we don't just read the Bible to see, here's what God tells me to do, but who does God reveal himself to be and why I can trust him? Ask yourself, why can I trust God? Now, we are able to see that this path is better. This path to follow God is better when, secondly, we highlight the comparisons, verses 12 through 22. We're only going to get through this part. Verses 12 through 22 highlight the comparisons. Read along with me. The wicked plots against the righteous, gnashes his... I'm sorry, I lost my place there. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked For he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw near the sword, and they bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. The sword shall enter his own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is a little that the righteous has than the abundance of the wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times, for in the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those, for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut. Off. And David's highlighting the comparisons between the path of the wicked and the path of the righteous. 
And you might perhaps have noticed that the path of the wicked involves attacking their enemies. The wicked see weakness and they go for it. It says the wicked plots against the righteous. He gnashes his teeth at him. Whereas the righteous are told, don't fret. Don't get angry. Don't attack. The wicked seethe inside. They plot against the righteous. Not just the righteous, but Psalms 2 says they plot against God himself. Psalm 2, verse 1 through 3 says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 2, 1 through 3. So they're trying to fight against God's people and against God himself. And just like Psalm 2, God merely laughs at their attempt. Verse 13, For the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees their day coming. It's funny, for those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm a black belt in karate. Uh, I don't keep up with it as much as I do, as I would like to. Um, but I do still enjoy it. I, I practice sometimes, and I know how to hurt people. It's just one of those things you know how to do. Uh, and yeah, this past week, we were playing around in here with a bunch of kids, and the kids are grabbing onto my legs, and they're trying to hold me down. They're trying to chase me, and it's kind of fun. And, we're, and honestly, we're all being silly. No one's trying very hard. But it's almost laughable. You think like, and, and I even at times was like running by, and I just kind of pushed them to the side a little bit, and I got around them. And you can just do really simple things that you twist someone's arm. You don't hurt them, but you can spin them around easily. And it's just funny almost, like kids trying to go after a full-grown adult. Now, you teenagers don't get an idea. You could probably beat me. Um, but when they're little, it's, it's laughable, right? Because you're like, they can't stop him. They can't take him on. They can't catch him. And yet the difference between man and God makes that insignificant in comparison. The difference between man and God is like us and ants. It, it, it makes ants even see nothing. He is the creator and we are creation. God knows exactly what's going to happen. He made us. He looks at our attempts to say he should be fall, taken down. And he just laughs. Verse 14, the wicked draw their sword. They bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. See, they see the righteous and they see victims. They see you, Christian, and they see an easy target, someone who's of a bygone era, too poor to hire defenders, too afflicted to defend yourself, and too upright to engage in violence when your Savior told you to turn the other cheek. And so they see the righteous as easy prey. But the turn around them is verse 15. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. This is the natural turning around of their own wickedness. Their own weapons will turn against them. And it's not just their own actions. Verse 17 says, the arms of the wicked shall be broken but the Lord upholds the, the righteous. God will bring justice. Their arms will be broken so they no longer can pick up a sword 
or a bow. In verse 20, we see that God brings about their end. The wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. God defends the righteous by stopping the wicked. He will bring them to an end. Instead, the path of the righteous involves God's care. Verse 16 says, Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of the wicked. Because what they have cannot be taken away. Verse 18 The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They will not be put to shame. When God arrives, those who eat the forbidden fruit and are told not to do something by God and they do it anyways, they will hear the sound of God walking in the garden, much like Adam and Eve did, and they will have nowhere to hide. David's asking a question to us. Do you want to take the path where you will panic when you hear God? Or will you take the path of being delighted in his presence? They will be okay. Verse 19 says, They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. This is the idea of trusting in him means not taking things into their own hands not doing something unrighteous to bring blessing on oneself. Again, this is the idea. They're, they're seeing the wicked. And they're like, but if I just do what they do, maybe I'll get what I need. And he's saying, no, do what God tells you to do. God's ways will work in the end. When the wicked respond in difficult times with evil, they refuse to pay back. So this is the idea. It says um, that... In verse 21, the wicked borrows, but he does not pay back. When hard times comes on the wicked, he'll borrow, but he won't pay back. He's like, forget it. I don't care who I took this money from, but the righteous is generous and gives. Isn't the mentality different? They are those who give to those in need, even if they do not have much compared to others, according to verse 16. See, it's a choice. We're all going to face this moment of not having everything we need. How are we going to respond? With generosity and giving towards others or with demands where we take and do not give back? The way of following God is better. And we need to remind ourselves of that sometimes. If you're not familiar with a man named George Mueller, you should look him up. George Mueller was a preacher in England. He was also the starter of many orphanages, and he's famous for his prayers. You know, he's famous for his prayers where he would often be praying for something. He'd have a need. He, he was literally running out of money for milk to feed his orphan boys. And he would pray and pray, Lord, please provide. And had many stories over and over again of how someone would drop by the day the money ran out and said, oh, I, I meant to send this in, but I got delayed. Here's some money. And he would have what he would need. But he's also famous for his time of devotions. He was focused on 
his devotions to the Lord, and he famously said, the first and great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul in a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished for I might seek to set the truth before the unconverted. I might seek to benefit believers. I might seek to receive the distressed. I might in other ways seek to behave myself as it becomes a child of God in this world and yet not be happy in the Lord and not be nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day with all this might not be attended to in the right spirit. You get what he's saying? He's saying, I could do all the right things. I could devote myself to godliness, but if I'm not happy in the Lord, it's not going to last. I'm not going to be delighting in him. I'm going to be discouraged by the world around me. One possible application of this section is to be thinking through what we're afraid of missing. What are you and I afraid of missing out on? People fear irrelevancy like nothing else, that we will be lost to those that matter. Often that depends on what you and I value. Like a mother might fear not being needed anymore by her children. A worker might fear not being valuable as a worker anymore, not knowing the proper technology as technology changes and they get left behind. Or some people get frustrated that they don't know the most recent pop culture references. And you're like, who are all these young people and why do they keep talking about these jokes that I know nothing about? Um, depends on each of us, right? Times we feel like we are passed by by others, that we're no longer needed, we're supplanted. And it's much harder thing when we don't like the person who's replacing us. It's easy when you're replaced by someone you love, right? But when you're replaced by someone who you're like, you don't, I, I, I don't like you. You're, you're not a good person. And, and perhaps no country on earth has been more future-oriented than us in the United States, where we are suckers for the, the myth of progress. The myth of progress, it says that the present is always better than the past, and the future will inevitably be better than the present. And our, and our world loves that. And while we may get mad at others, how often, how common do we forget the wisdom of Ecclesiastes 7 verse 10? Why do you say the former days are better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 10 says, why do you say the former days are better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. See, David and Solomon after him are telling us it's not about old versus new. It's not about being relevant or getting back to the old ways. It's not about the past versus what we have now. In our hearts, we must all battle over, am I relevant because of God? Or am I relevant because of X, Y, and Z, whether the old way or the new way or whatever it may be. We need to delight ourselves in Yahweh and say, I will follow him. And that will lead to the relevancy and the importance that I need. 
the prism of this psalm, and, and again, we're not going to get all to all of it because we could take another 40 minutes to get to the other half of this psalm. But the prism of Psalm 37, verse 4, is delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And this whole psalm is telling us, how do we delight ourselves in the Lord? We trust him and we do the good that he has told us. This is a call to direct our affections, our hearts, with God's satisfaction when we're frustrated. Look to his smile to say that you've done enough. And secondly, we saw there is a benefit to following God because it will last. And might I close us with this thought that we have a message worth giving to an anxious world. I was just talking to someone yesterday about how the world seems scarier in a lot of ways. More divided, more concerned, more anti-Christian, anti-God than it was in the past. And, and you look through history, and in some ways we're better than others, in some ways we're worse. But I was reading an article by Samuel James in World Opinions. World Magazine produces a twice-a-month articles a magazine that you can look through. Uh, very good in telling you what's going on in the world from a biblical perspective. And Samuel James writes about how we know that prosperity does not bring happiness. In fact, studies have shown that there are clusters of depression and suicide, most among teens in some of the most affluent, technologically sophisticated communities in the country. In fact, some of the most educated places have the greatest rates of suicide. And he says that human beings don't just need more stuff or more education. Human beings need something transcendent. We need God to give us meaning and purpose, not just economic benefits. See, you and I in the church have a great opportunity, not just for our own souls, though we must start there, right? Not just for our own selves to be happy in the Lord, but to remind their world there is something better than having stuff, than having success. It is having Christ. It is having a God who is the greatest thing and who watches over his people and takes our hands through suffering so that we know there is no temptation except what is common to man. And God does not provide, or God does not tempt you beyond what you're able to handle, but always provides a means of escape that you might endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And then verse 14 says, therefore flee idolatry. Point your attention back to Christ. As you and I struggle to delight in God, and yes, it can be a struggle at times, we can be used to show others how great he is because no one cares if you have all the stuff that they want and, they say, and you say, God is great. They're like, well, yeah, sure, God is great. He gave you all these things. But like Job, when we struggle and we say, as Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done, we say to those around us, God is greater. So let us say that together. Let me pray. God in heaven, we do pray, O oh Lord, that we would believe you are greater. God, there are so many things that we want, so many things, O oh Lord, that are good, that are good for us. 
Or we, we look at the world around us and we're like, why, why, Lord, do certain people get rich? Certain people get blessed? Certain people, Lord, get popular? Certain people get elected? And it'd be so easy, Lord, to think we should just do what they do. But we pray instead, Lord, may we look towards your ways. May we take our eyes off the world, put them back on you, and see how then we can greater love others. Give us opportunities to do good this week. To the glory of your name, Jesus Christ, amen.